All right. How's everyone doing? Great. I love Christmas time. A bunch of uh, you college students come back that I haven't seen in uh, a whole semester, and it's good to see you guys. And so, uh, with that said, we're going to take a break from the book of Ephesians this morning. If you would, open up your Bibles to the book of contents. It's not the first time I've done that joke. Glad I still get a laugh. Uh, I'm not joking, though, about turning to the table of contents. If you would turn there, I would like to just look over um, the Old Testament real quick. I think it's helpful to know how your Bible is put together. Um, There's four main sections in the Old Testament. The first one is called the Pentateuch because it's the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. Pentateuch is written by Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The second major portion of the Old Testament is the historical books. That's Joshua through Esther. And therefore, if you go through Genesis through Esther, you have not only the history of of the, the Old Testament, the history of Israel, but you have the history of mankind as a whole. From there, you have the wisdom and poetry books. That's Job. Uh, through the Sons of Solomon, and then the uh, prophetic books, the Old Testament prophets, that's Isaiah through Malachi. This is what I actually like to do today. I'm going to try to preach through the entire Old Testament history. That's Genesis through Esther. If you've ever complained about me moving too slowly through a book, this sermon is for you this morning. And here's my goal, and I've done this before one other time from the pulpit here, and if you grew up in the high school ministry, I did this many times, and you'll be familiar with this sermon. But here, here's my goal. I want us to, to help us see the meta-narrative of Scripture. The meta-narrative of Scripture, it's a fancy word, meta-narrative. It just means the big story of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, the big story of the Old Testament. I want you to see that the Old Testament is one big story. And this is why. If you do not know the larger story of Scripture, you'll be tempted to misinterpret Scripture. You'll see it as many unconnected small stories. And I think for the majority of Christians growing up in the church, that's how we see Scripture, a bunch of small stories. You'll start asking yourself, which I believe, again, most people do, what does this small unconnected story have to do with me in my life? The Old Testament then becomes nothing more than small moral stories, life lessons on how to live morally. Here's my goal. My goal this morning is to help us see Scripture differently. Really try to connect some dots, hopefully, for for some of us today. I want us to see that the Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about you and what you need to do. The Bible is about Him and what He has done. That's my goal And I'm warning you right now, I'm going to try to do this in one sitting and get us out on time. I'm going to skip some stuff, (laughs) right? I'm going to skip some important overarching themes like kingdom, dominion, covenant, sacrifice, missions, Israel, the church. These are all important overarching themes, and there's books and books, theology books on overarching themes in Scripture um, that are worthwhile, but there is one theme that all theologians agree on, that the Old Testament points forward to Christ and the New Testament points back to what Christ did. Jesus Christ is the backbone of the entire scripture, and so so that's the theme that we're going to use to look through Genesis through Esther. So if you would, turn to Genesis 1 verse 1 with me this morning. 
Genesis 1, verse 1. I'm sure we all have memorized, In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and therefore he owns everything. Have you ever thought about that? I hope you have. I hope you've thought through that he owns everything. Therefore, everything we have has been given to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and in day one, God created light just by speaking. It's amazing. Let there be light, and boom, there was light. Day two, he stretched out the heavens. Day three, he created earth and vegetations. Day four, the sun, the moon, and stars. And I love verse 16, and I will repeat verse 16 over and over again. Every time I go through Genesis, it says this in verse 16. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser night to rule the night and the stars. We get three words on the most glorious powerful, awesome things in creation, these massive stars, and all we get is, and the stars. Here, just have these so you know how big I am. Day five, swarms and swarms of living creatures. That's birds and sea creatures. Day six, land animals. And lastly, the pinnacle of God's creation, God created man. Genesis 2, the Trinity actually comes down and personally forms man from dust, then breathes intimately and personally, breathes life into him. Mad was made in God's image. And Psalms 139 says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. God made man well. God made man last. And then God gave him everything. God gave man everything to rule over. He said, just don't eat from one tree in all of creation. That's it. On day seven, God rested, enjoyed his creation. Creation was good. Man had everything. Man had a relationship with God and walked with him. Man was in paradise. Then we get to Genesis 3. The fall of man. The serpent, which is the devil, tempts man. Man falls and sins. And the world goes from being a good, perfect creation to a fallen world. And there's four immediate effects on man. The first one was guilt and shame. It says that they knew that they were naked. Before sin, they didn't know that they were naked. But after sin, they knew they were naked and they were shameful. And they were guilty. They had guilt and shame. And when I say guilt, I mean true guiltiness. Not just the feeling of guilt. The second effect was man's effort through works. They, they tried to cover their guiltiness with fig leaves. They sewed fig leaves together and tried to cover their shame and guilt. The third effect was separation from God. Man and his wife hid themselves when God walked. Genesis 3, 8. They hid themselves from God. And the last effect was the refusal to take responsibility. Adam told God it was the woman's fault. It was the woman whom you gave to me. You just think about that for a second. Not only did did the man who was given everything eat from the one tree God said not to eat from and rebelled and sinned against God, then he comes around and blames God for his sin. 
It's my wife's fault that I sinned. Eve said, it was the serpent's fault whom you put here. That's a side note. This isn't in my notes. But I have more time second service, so. Whenever you blame shift, you're truly just blaming God. When you blame your sin on something else, someone else, your wife, your kids, you're just blaming God because he sovereignly put them there. So, God gives curses on Satan, man, and woman. But within Satan's curse, there's a promise to man. A hope for all mankind. And it's found in Genesis 3.15, if you would turn there. Genesis 3.15. I like the NASB because it's a little bit more word for word in Genesis 3.15 than the ESV is. And it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and and her seed. The ESV has offspring, but the literal word is seed. Her seed. The woman's seed. What's, what's wrong with that? Who has the seed biologically? Man. There's only one person ever born without a seed from man. Jesus. Jesus born to a virgin. And the NIV, I like how it says, the second part of verse 15, says, he, the seed, he will crush your, that's Satan, he will crush your head, and you, that Satan, will strike his heel. What happens when a venomous snake strikes a man's heel? Death. In other words, to crush the serpent's head, the promised seed will die. What's this sounding like? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. This is pointing to Jesus. Listen, I don't know what Adam and Eve knew at this point, but, but there was hope in Satan's curse. There was hope of redemption in Satan's curse. They had faith. Listen, they had faith in a coming seed, a coming offspring, a seed that will crush Satan's head. And we see this hope in Genesis 4. Turn to Genesis 4, verse 1. It says this in verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, this is what Eve says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. In the Hebrew, there's actually an excitement in that, that phrase. She was excited, Eve, with this, with this man that was born. Why? She thought Cain was the seed. He would crush the serpent's head. He would redeem her and her husband. He was the chosen one. But we know the story. She was wrong. He was wrong. Cain had a brother, Abel. Cain was jealous of Abel. Cain murdered Abel. Just one chapter. One chapter. the The very beginning of this chapter, we see the first murder, the effects of a fallen world. Hatred, jealousy, death, murder. But what's the problem? And I want you to think differently. What's the problem in in a big story, in a meta-narrative of Scripture? What's the problem? If Cain wasn't the seed, and Abel is dead, therefore not the seed, who is the seed? Look at Genesis 4, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, And she bore a son and called 
his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. Literally, that word is seed. Another seed. Instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. What's verse 26? Verse 26 is a genealogy. You have Adam, who has a son, Seth. Seth, who has a son, Enosh. The seed is getting passed down from father to son. But then the author adds something very interesting. It says this, At that time, this is the birth of Seth and Enosh, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The author is telling us that there's something special about these births. Right? They point to a hope, a hope that is coming, a coming seed, and it keeps going. Chapter 5, what's chapter 5? A genealogy. Look at Genesis 5.1. It says this, this is the book of the, the generations of Adam. It's a genealogy. You ever wonder why there's genealogies in Scripture? The genealogy points to hope of a coming seed. Hope of a coming seed. Adam has a son, Seth. Seth has a son, Enosh. His son has a son. His son has a son. His son has a son. The, the seed is getting passed down. The genealogy in, in chapter 5 ends with Noah. And we get to chapter 6 through 9, which is the flood. Mankind is so evil. Genesis 6 verse 5 says this, and I like how the New Living Translation words it. Genesis 6 verse 5, it should be on your screen. We have this one? We don't. Sorry. Genesis 6 verse 5 says this, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. And God said, I'm taking them out. But what's the problem? Again, think meta narrative, think big story. What's the problem? What about the seed? Or the seed hasn't come yet. It's interesting. I, I, I believe, I truly believe, one of the reasons God saves Noah's family is just to preserve the seed. He made a promise to Adam and Eve that a seed would come, and there has been no seed. Right? The seed is coming, and there's still hope. Noah had the seed, and, and, and God gives him and his sons that seed. It passes down, and it's passed down to the son Shem. We get to chapters 10 and 11, and you find the Tower of Babel, which is a very important story in the meta narrative of Scripture, but we mostly find a genealogy of Noah's sons. In particular, Shem's family. Right, the seed is passed down to Shem, then to his son, then to his son, then it's his son, until we get to Abram. Chapter 12. The narrative really slows down and focuses in focuses in on one family. It's Abraham's family. You know, the Bible does this throughout. You'll see the Bible really go through generations really quickly, and then an important character comes on the scene, and the Bible slows down and spends a lot of time on that person and his family. The the narrative slows down with Abraham, and Abraham is given a promise. He's pulled out of his pagan family and given a promise, a covenant. He's promised three things. He's promised a land, He's promised a great nation, that his offsprings would become a great nation and would, would be given a land. He's promised a land, a great nation, and that he would be a blessing. That the seed would come from his family and would be a blessing to all the nations. 
So Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. And his name gets changed to Israel. Jacob, now called Israel, has 12 sons. And these 12 boys become the 12 tribes of Israel. Their families. The 12 boys are promised to become a great nation. But here's a question. How do you take one family, a a father and 12 boys and and their families, how do you take them, this one family, and make them into a great nation? Well, that's where you get to the story of Joseph, one of the 12 brothers. He ends up in Egypt. Because he's in in Egypt, he brings his whole family to Egypt, where Egypt protects them, and this family grows and grows and grows and grows and grows until we get to Exodus 1-7, which says this. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. I think the author's trying to get a point across. (laughs) There's a lot of them. They've become a great nation. These 12 brothers and their families have expanded and expanded and expanded and become a great nation in number. But that's only one-third of the promise, right, to Abraham? great nation, a land, right, and a blessing. They don't have a promised land, and they're not a blessing to all the other nations. So Exodus 1.8 says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he did not like the Israelites. This king, or Pharaoh, said in verse 10, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. This is the Israelites. Let us deal shrewdly with the Israelites, lest they multiply even more, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they will join the enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Pharaoh, this king, wants to stop the Israelites from multiplying, from growing. They keep growing. He wants to stop it. Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. In other words, harsh slavery. That will stop them from multiplying. But it didn't work. So verse 22 says this, And Pharaoh commanded all his people, everyone in Egypt, every son that is born to the Hebrews, which is another name for the Israelites, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. In other words, the Egyptians were were commanded to take every baby boy of the Israelites and throw them into the Nile and kill them. You know, as a side note, I think we read some of these stories and we're so familiar with them that we forget how horrible they are. Forget to put ourselves in that situation. Can you think what it would have been like for the Israelites as they see all their friends and families, firstborn babies thrown in the Nile? Just imagine what they were thinking as an Israelite. God, why would you let this happen? What are you doing? Aren't we your chosen people? Listen, one of the themes of Scripture that's from Genesis all the way to Revelation that, that just screams out of, out of the Bible is that God is sovereign over everything. And that God uses evil done by man for good. And because of the killing of the Israelite babies, one of the babies ended up in Pharaoh's own household. His name was Moses. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household, educated and trained by the Egyptians in the best schools there were in the world at that time. Then he was called by God to lead his people 
out of Egypt, and we get to Exodus 7 through 12, and God shows his power to the world. There's a showdown between Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at that time, Egypt and, and their gods, versus Israel, a slave nation, and the one true God. There's ten plagues, and each one of these plagues, I believe, is an attack on a false god that the Egyptians worshipped. The first plague is blood, verse 7. The second one is frogs, or chapter 7, sorry. The second one is frogs, chapter 8. The third one is gnats, chapter 8. The fourth one is flies, chapter 8. The fifth one is livestock disease, chapter 9. Boils, chapter 9. Hail, chapter 9. Locusts, chapter 10. Darkness, chapter 10, which is an attack on Ra, the sun god. Lastly, the death of the firstborn, chapter 12, which I believe is an attack on Pharaoh himself, who claimed to be deity. Therefore, Pharaoh and the Egyptians begged Israel to leave. And the whole world saw, the whole world saw that there is only one true God, and the people of Israel belong to him. Again, Egypt lets Israel go, but that's not the end. We get to Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There's 40 years in the wilderness before entering into the promised land. And God prepares Israel for the promised land by giving them his law. He says, this is how I want you to live in the promised land. Get to the book of Joshua. Moses dies. The leadership of Israel is passed to Joshua. And the book of Joshua is all about this now great nation in number taking over the promised land. Israelites win miraculous battle after miraculous battle and eventually conquer the land end of Joshua, the land is divided up among the 12 tribes. Israel is a great nation. Israel is within the promised land. But then we get to the book of Judges. Judges is one of the ugliest books in all of Scripture. Judges 1.1 says this, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up and fight they're first to fight against the Canaanites. So after the death of Joshua, there, there is no leader, and there's this cycle that happens in the book of Judges. It happens 12 times. Israel does evil. Because of that, a nation comes in and oppresses them. There's great distress, and so Israel cries out to God. God raises up judges, which are just military leaders. And God saves Israel through these judges, these military leaders. And Israel worships God again until that judge dies. And that cycle starts all over again. There's 12 cycles, 12 different judges. And each cycle, it just gets eviler and eviler and eviler. Until you get to the last judge, Samson, and that whole story is just weird. Judges 21-25 says this, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit or did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king, there was no leader, and everyone just did what they wanted to do. They rejected God as their king and lord. But what's the problem? Again, I want you guys to think. What's the problem metanarratively or, or, or big story? Where is the seed? None of the judges are the seed. 
There's no genealogy in the book of Judges. It's like the seed has been lost in the book of Judges. The book of Judges just really ends in this hopeless feeling, and it leaves us with a question. Is Israel still God's chosen people? Because they look like all the other nations. In fact, they look worse than all the other nations. You get to the end of the book of Judges, and and they look worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. You can actually read the story at the end of Judges and read the story about Sodom and Gomorrah, and they parallel each other. Besides, Israel is worse. Rape, murder, ripping people into pieces and shipping them across the nation. The book ends leaving you with this question, is there any hope? Is the seed still coming? Then we get to the book of Ruth. Do you wonder why Ruth is in here? It's this love story. It's like a chick flick. All right. After the brutality of the ugliness of judges, one professor said this, Ruth is like a flower growing in the pile of, a pile of manure. The manure being judges. But listen, Ruth is more than that. Ruth is more than just a love story. It's more than just a good moral story on how to take care of your in-laws. <laughs> Ruth is a book of hope, especially the end, because Ruth ends with a genealogy. Look at Ruth 4.18. It says this in Ruth 4.18. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez is the father of Hezron. Hezron is the father of Ram. Ram is the father of Amidadab. Amidadab is the father of uh, Nashon. Nashon is the father of Salmon. Salmon is the father of Boaz. Boaz is the father of Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David. The seed is still coming. It's been passed down from Abraham. It's been passed down through Ruth and Boaz. It's been passed down to the great king David. There's hope for Israel. There's hope for the world. And God is still faithful to his promises, no matter how evil Israel was. The seed promised in Genesis 3 is still coming through the line of Jesse, the father of David. Which gets us to First and Second Samuel, which again slows down and focuses on one man, that's David and his family. Saul is a bad king, like the other nations, but then David comes on, right? God's king. A man after God's own heart. David is a great king. Yet we learn in First and Second Samuel that David is not the seed. The seed will come from David. The seed will be a son of David. But David is a sinful man, not the promised seed. David is a type of the seed. A type of the seed that is coming. What does that mean? What does the word type mean? It's a theological term which just means David's life points to the seed. David's life points forward to the seed. Think about this. David and Goliath. David is a type of the seed. Goliath comes down and says to Israel, send someone that will fight your battle. Send someone that will fight the battle for Israel. If he wins, you win, Israel. Someone that will come and represent Israel. And if he wins the battle, it's like Israel won the battle. David fought the battle Israel wouldn't and couldn't fight. 
He stood in the place of Israel in battle, and he won. Therefore, Israel won. Listen, that all points to Christ. That all points to Christ, who represented us, stood in our place and died on the cross and and won the battle we couldn't win against sin. The story of David and Goliath is not about you. It's not about you and the giants you're facing. It's not a moral tale about courage when facing one's giants. It's about the seed, God's anointed one, and what he did on behalf of Israel. Listen, David's life points to Christ on the cross. I, I know some of you might be upset with me going, like, I use that all the time, I, you know, facing the giants. It's a movie. Listen, we are not David in this story. If we are anyone, we are Israel cowarding because Goliath is facing us. David is Christ who, who, who conquers Goliath for us. You know what's interesting? I, just, I think this is interesting. Genesis 3.15 says, it starts by saying, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. In Scripture, there's this long description of Goliath and his armor in 1 Samuel. ESV, 1 Samuel 17.5, it says that Goliath wore a coat of mail. Well, what is mail? A commentator said this, Goliath's coat of mail was several hundred small bronze plates like fish scales or like a serpent's scales. The NASB actually says he was clothed with scale armor like a snake. And how did David kill Goliath? He shot a rock at him, hit him in the forehead, and crushed his head. David's life points to Christ, the coming seed. Which leads us to 2 Samuel 7, 14 through 16, actually 11 through 16. This is an important passage. David comes to God, or he comes to Nathan the prophet, and says, I want to build God a house. I want to build him a temple. And God says, no. God, the great giver, says, David, you're not building me a temple. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. 2 Samuel seven eleven says this, Moreover, the Lord declared to you that the Lord will make you a house. The house here is not a, a, a structure like David was thinking. It was, it was referring to a dynasty, as we will see. This was a promise to David, a covenant, that David's sons will sit on the throne after he dies. Look at what it says in in verse 12. It says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offsprings after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's an amazing promise. There's one thing you know about kingdoms and nations. They rise and they fall. Not this one. 
This passage is saying a seed is coming from David's genealogy. He'll be a son of David, and his kingdom will last forever. Gets us to first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles. What is first and second Kings? You just think about that and first and second Chronicles. Think about the story as a whole. What is it? It's one big genealogy. So-and-so was king. He dies. His son becomes king. So-and-so was king. He dies. His son becomes king. It's a genealogy of the kings. It's a genealogy of the, the seed of David. It starts with David's son, Solomon. It starts off as a good king, but then starts worshiping false gods. And because of this, God says, I'm taking away the kingdom. But you get to 1 Kings 11.36, and it says this, Yet to his son, to Solomon's son, I will give him one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. I'm going to keep my promise with David. He gets one tribe, but because of his sins, right, because of the foolishness of his son, Rehoboam, the kingdom was split into two. You had the northern kingdom, which was ten tribes of Israel, and the southern kingdom was one tribe, Judah. Why the southern kingdom? Because of the promise and covenant God made with David, that there will always be a son on the throne. But for Solomon, from there, it just gets worse. You go through First and Second Kings and you follow the seed right, of David's line. So-and-so has a son, he becomes king. Then so-and-so has a son, he becomes king. And so-and-so has a son, he becomes king. This is just a long genealogy. But the genealogy is this downward spiral into sin. Every now and then there's a good king, but most of them are evil. Until, and this is super important because this is where I think for most of us the Bible gets fuzzy. Because of Israel and the king's sins... Because they were evil, the kingdom was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Israel was carried into exile. The northern kingdom in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom in 586 B.C. by Judah, or Judah by the Babylonians. The tribe of Judah is carried to Babylon. People are carried to Babylon for 70 years. And during this time... The Israelites must have been thinking. I know this happened because we sinned. I know this happened because we rebelled against God. But God, what about your promises? What about, about, about God's promise to Abraham that we would be a great nation, that we would be in the promised land? What about the, the everlasting throne of David? Where, where is this coming king? What about this, this coming seed? You get to the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and you see some hope. Ezra and Esther, God moves in the king's heart to let Israelites return to the promised land and rebuild the temple. This is what it says in Ezra 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Persia destroyed Babylon, and so they're in charge now. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. This is what, this is what the king wrote. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of, of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Ju- Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. In other words, rebuild the temple. The book of Ezra, the Israelites return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. And then they rebuild the temple. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah helps rebuild the wall. But then, with historical narrative, that's it. The Old Testament ends. Have you ever thought about the ending of the Old Testament? I think as New Testament believers, we we're so, so know the New Testament well that we don't think about the ending of the Old Testament. It just ends. There is no king. I mean, where's David's son? What about, what about God's promise to David? The kingdom is a small nation under the control of pagan nation after pagan nation after pagan nation. They're not even sovereign. They're not even in control of their own land. What about the promise to Abraham, this great nation that will be a blessing to all the nations? What about the seed? I mean, really, the Old Testament in the historical narrative ends with this hopeless feeling. It's kind of like the end of Judges. If you're an Israelite, you just read the story of the Old Testament. You may be tempted to ask, can we trust God's promises? You know what the answer is? Yes. Turn to Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Matthew 1.1. 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The Old Te- or New Testament starts, the very first word in the New Testament starts with the genealogy. You ever wondered why? This is why. Jesus is the promised seed. He is the promised seed. He is the son of David. Right? The book of the genealogies of of Jesus Christ, the son of David. He's the fulfillment of the promise to David, a righteous king that will sit on the throne forever. He is the son of Abraham. In other words, he's the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. He is the blessing to all the nations. Look at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, Look at verse 5. And, and Salomon was the father of Boaz by, by Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Look at verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph and the, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. You know what that is? That's Genesis 2, 1 and 2 Samuel. 
And from David to the deportation to, to Babylon, 14 generations, that's First and Second Samuel to First and Second Chronicles. And the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, that's 14 generations, that's First and Second Chronicles to Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and finally Matthew. It all points to Christ. It all points to Christ, the seed of the woman, born of a virgin, a son of Abraham, a son of David, a son of man, the son of God. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. He is the one that will crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. He is the son of David who was raised on the third day, who ascended to the right hand of the Father and now sits on, on David's throne forever as king of kings and lord of lords. This is why we celebrate Christmas. God is faithful to his promises. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of them. It's all about Jesus. You know what that means? It's not about you. It's not about you. The Bible is not about you and what you need to do. The Bible is about him. It's about Jesus and what he did. I want to end by reading the Christmas story. Look at Matthew 1, verse 18. Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." You know, that's the problem of the whole Testament. And the problem of the whole Testament is sin. We were in paradise. Starting in Genesis 3, sin. Genesis 4, we have murder. Sin is a hopelessness, evil, throughout the whole Testament. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Jesus is the seed. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He's the only human being that's ever not sinned. And he died on the cross for our sins. For our sins. And, and God commands us, commands us to put our trust in him. If you just think about the gospel. You know what that is? That's good news. You know what that is? That's news. It's a proclamation of truth. It's not a suggestion. John 3.16 said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen, if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you don't know Jesus this morning, put your faith in him. He is the promised seed. He is the one that takes away the sins by dying on the cross for our sins, but that's only for those who believe in him. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Manuel, which means God with us. I just think it's amazing to me that Jesus, for the first time since the garden, literally walked with his people. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Listen, this is Christmas. The promised seed is here. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, there is so much joy in the baby Jesus because it is, it is not just a sign, Lord, but it, it is the truth, Lord, that you are faithful to your promises. The whole Old Testament pointing forward to this birth. God, help us be in awe of that. This book that was written over thousands of years by many different authors with all different backgrounds, different nations, different languages even, Lord, all writing a consistent story that points to your Son. It's because the one true author of Scripture is you. But more than that, Lord, what Jesus represents, what he did for us, Lord, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins, and then raised and ascended, who is right now in authority over everything, God, help us to to see this, Lord. Help us to be in awe of this. Help us to see Christmas is not about us, but about Christ, Lord. I pray that this is just a worshipful week as we celebrate the fulfillment of your promises, which is Christ, Lord. Be with us as a church. I pray if there's anyone that doesn't know your son, doesn't have a relationship with you, Lord, that they don't leave this place without putting their faith in you and that they would talk to someone about it. Be with us in this time in your son's name. Amen. Merry Christmas.